Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have done for us, all that you have provided for us. Father, we're thankful that we can come together now to study your Word, that you have revealed yourself to us, and you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have uh, blessed us in so many different ways. Father, we pray that you will continue to enlighten us to your word as we study today to understand faith and that we can understand that which is necessary for salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 8 at the phrase, Faith, that it is through faith that we are saved, and understanding what that means. There's a lot of controversy over what it means to have faith. Let me give you just some ideas of where there are problems. We have to define the term believe, and we have to understand what the Greek terms means, not just the English. For some, it means to commit your life Christ. For others, it means to invite Jesus into your life or into your heart. For others, it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You have heard people present the gospel using these terms and using these phrases, and I suggest that if you're going to give somebody the gospel using one of those terms or phrases, you ought to find a verse that uses them because you will not find a verse that uses any of that terminology for the gospel and for the good news of Jesus Christ. Another thing that is often heard about faith, usually in the context of seeing somebody who has failed morally or spiritually in their, in their Christian life, and they will say, well, he had a head belief but not a heart belief. He missed heaven by 12 inches. That used to be a very common thing. I think it still is in some circles. And then one that crops up even among those who have a understanding of the free grace gospel, the idea that, that faith is not volitional. So these are just some of the ways in which people just get confused about faith. And some of the ways in which it is explained can also confuse people. So we're going to address some of this beginning this morning, and it will probably run over into uh, the next lesson after I return uh, from Kiev. Ephesians 2.89 states, For by grace you... What does the you mean? It means that Paul is talking to the Gentiles. All through this section, as we get down into uh, this chapter especially, you refers to the Gentiles... We refers mostly to we Jews who were saved first. But it can also, in a couple of places, refer to us together now. But here, Paul is singling out the Gentile audience and saying, for by grace, you Gentiles. He's not saying it's not true for the Jews also, but he is specifically pointing out, you Gentiles have been saved. It's a perfect tense verb indicating present reality. So it can also be translated legitimately, you are saved, because this is an action that happened in the past, was completed in the past, 
and the results are still in effect. That not uh, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, another part of this problem, which I didn't get to last time I started it, is what does it mean? What does the that mean? Some people think that the that refers to grace, that grace is not of yourselves. Some people think it refers to saved, that salvation is not of yourselves. Others, and this is dominant among uh, many Calvinists, that that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Uh, and that is a confusion on faith because that makes saving faith a different kind of faith than everyday faith. And let me suggest that if it is a different kind of faith than the everyday faith that we experience, then what kind of faith is it? And this indeed leads to confusion. For there are a number of uh, leaders within the Calvinist thought who have suggested that you can believe in Jesus for salvation and not be saved. Because unless your works demonstrate a true saving faith then you are not truly saved. That destroys any assurance of salvation because it places assurance in your post-salvation works and not in the promise of God. And our assurance is in the promise of God. Now, as we overview this chapter, we see and are reminded that the problem is stated in the first three verses that we are spiritually dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins, Paul says, and this is not non-existence or inability, which is how a Cal many Calvinists interpret that term, and we must define it contextually, and in the context of Ephesians in 4.18, it is described as being alienated from the life of God. So it means to be separated from the life of God. It doesn't mean that you can't hear the gospel. It doesn't mean you can't respond to the gospel. It means that you're alienated from the life of God. The reason I emphasize that is that in Calvinism, in strict Calvinism, you have the teaching that regeneration precedes faith because a dead person can't believe. A dead person can't hear. A dead person can't read. A dead person can't understand. A dead person can't do anything because they're dead. So it's a wrong definition of death for spiritual death. It is a different definition than being alienated from the life of God, which makes perfect sense in the context because it's, it states that the solution to being dead in your trespasses and sins is given in uh, verse 5, when it says that he made us alive together with Christ. That's the solution, is to be made alive together with Christ. So, so it's that alienation from God's life that is the problem with spiritual death. That solution is what's defined in verses 4 through 9, which we spent a lot of time studying, uh, that it's based upon God's love, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then that verse ends with the phrase, by grace you have been saved. Contextually, being saved in that phrase is a synonym for being made alive together with Christ. 
Therefore, made alive together is the same in this context as being saved. So when we read the repeat of this phrase in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, saved means to be regenerated, to be made alive together with him. Now that's a maybe a difficult logic chain for some people to follow. That's why I like putting these things up on the board. It's very, very clear that being made alive together in this context is the same as being saved. And so when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, in verse 8, he means, for by grace you have been made alive together with him. So being made alive together with him, in verse 8, means that it is through faith. The text says you've been made alive together with him, or being saved, the same thing, through faith. That means that faith must precede regeneration. It's very clear based on the grammar. If you were to come to me as uh, someone did uh, yesterday when we were at the, uh, at, at the gym getting our CPR training, said, um, where's the bathroom? I said, it's through the door. Now, to get to the bathroom, what comes first, going through the door or getting to the bathroom? If I say you have to go through the door to get to the bathroom, what are you going to do? What's, what's first? Through the door. So through faith has to precede being made alive together. What does that mean? It means dead men can believe. It means dead men can understand the gospel. I'm not saying that they don't need help, illumination from the Holy Spirit, but that dead men can believe. They do not have to have God give them the faith as a special kind of faith. So we're told, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, now the that refers to the by grace through faith salvation. And we'll get to why I say that in just a minute. It's not a that that refers to one of the these nouns, grace, saved, or through faith. So I have this illustration that faith is like the pipeline. It is through faith, the pipe, that the water of life comes. We have to turn on the valve with our volition. Volition is a part of it. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, said that faith is voluntary assent, which in that statement wasn't a bad start. It is voluntary. That emphasizes volition. Assent is to agree that something is true. We'll deal with that more eventually. So the spiritually dead sinner is separated from the life of God, which is the water of life. And when he turns on the volition valve of faith and trusts in God, faith comes to, I mean, the water comes to him, so it has to go through faith before he drinks the water of life and is saved. So the question that I put off a minute ago is, what does the that describe? Is it faith? Is it grace or is it saved? The problem is that in the Greek, the relative pronoun 
that has translated that is a neuter gender pronoun. There's no gender confusion there. It can only refer to something that is also neuter. The problem with this is that the noun grace and the noun faith are feminine nouns. So it cannot refer to grace and it cannot refer to, to faith. That's impossible. The word saved is a masculine participle. It can't refer to a masculine participle. A neuter pronoun has to refer to a neuter noun. So it can't refer to any of those. But what we learn in a study of uh, Greek, the Greek language and phrases, that when there are uh, phrases or clauses or sentences or even entire letters or books of literature, that the reference, is, the pronoun is going to be in the neuter gender. That's a huge observation. So that when we're saved and says, and that not of yourselves, it is referring to this entire uh, clause. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is picked up, as I've pointed out when we've gone through this, uh, from the end of verse 5. And now Paul restates it and saying that it is that by grace through faith salvation that is not of yourselves. It's the whole package, and it's focusing on this plan of salvation that God has given us. This is God's salvation, and that gift is ours, so that uh, belief is, is something that we do in response. So the next part of the verse says that uh, let me skip. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And then the next verse in verse 9 says, and not of works. I don't have that part up here. So what are the works? There's a debate over this. There is a group called the New Perspectives of Paul that had their origin about the late 70s. I've pointed him out. A guy by the name of N.T. Wright was a bishop in the Anglican Church, and there are a number of others. But what they tried to do was claim that these works are talking just about the works of the law. For example, they will use a verse like Romans 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith or through faith. It's the same language there that's used in Ephesians 2.8, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified through faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, the problem in Galatia was these so-called Judaizers who came in and says, it's not faith alone. You have to add works in obedience to the law. You have to have circumcision. You have to have other obedience to the law. Now, the problem uh, with that is that Paul is addressing or the issue here is that Paul is addressing this, this Jewish issue. This is the same thing that happens in Romans. He's dealing with those who have uh, with a primarily Jewish background uh, congregation. And there he's, he also talks about the, the works of the law, but he makes it clear that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all 
and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law or the works of the law. So he's writing, he uses the works of the law because that's the issue in those uh, congregations. In Romans 4.2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works... Now, notice he doesn't say by the works of the law. Why does he not say Abraham was not justified by the works of the law? There was no law at that time. Abraham is around 2000, 2050 A.D., I mean B.C., 2050 B.C., and he is some 600 years before the giving of the law. So what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, notice he doesn't say does the works of the law. The wages are not counted as grace but debt. So it applies to any work, not just the works of the law, any effort that you think somehow impresses God. So the works of the law in those epistles relates to Jewish legalism. But in the books like Titus, which are written to a Gentile who is uh, pastoring Gentiles, he just says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It would cover any form of righteousness. Now that's an interesting phrase because that is that would also apply to Jews who thought they had righteousness from the from the works of the law. But non-Jews might also think they could get righteousness from the works of the law. And so it emphasizes that it's not by works of any kind of righteousness, law righteousness or any other kind, that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So we understand as we look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that the faith is the means by which we are saved. That tells us that grammatically that faith precedes regeneration. It also tells us that the works, that is any kind of work, that's the issue here in in 289, he's talking to Gentiles, and he says you've been saved through faith and not of works. He doesn't bring in the law because he's talking about uh, the law, I mean, works as a whole. That's very important. And uh, as I pointed out, it is this new perspective of Paul. There are many others who are redefining what Paul is saying here in order to get Jews saved by something other than faith in Christ. So if it's, if they, it's not just uh, when, when they d- redefine the works of the law in just specific ritual and not the law as a whole, then they... They really pervert the gospel. But at the heart of all of this is an understanding of what faith means. In his first edition of his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur completely misidentified the meaning of the word here. The word here in the Greek is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it means faith. And he treated it as if it said pistos, which means faithful. And that fits the Calvinist perseverance model. Now, I wrote a book review of that. I don't know that he read mine. I'm probably not the only person who commented on it, but I did comment on that. And when the second edition came out, he changed it. Still came to the same conclusion, but at least he tried to avoid the 
the uh, etymological error there. So what does the Bible teach about saving faith? What is faith? What does it mean to believe something? This is where Christians get into a lot of confusion. One reason is, is because we have a heritage, and by we I mean within the evangelical tradition, of an anti-intellectualism. Now, perhaps when you hear that, you may, may think of some country preacher out on the stump, or you may think of one, some revivalist evangelist on television, and they're, you know they're not very uh, intellectual, they're not very scholarly. That's not what we mean by the term anti-intellectual. Anti-intellectual at its core has the idea that faith is not a product of the intellect, but is a product of the emotions. It is a feeling. And so when you start, and many evangelicals do that, when you start defining faith as something related to emotion or feeling, then you are saying that it is not rational. You are saying that it is not a product of the mind, but is a product of of the of the feeling that's part of the problem with the phrase that distinguishes between a so-called head belief and a heart belief it, a heart belief is one that has emotion attached to it so we have to break this down and this is not simple i'm making it simple but it is not simple there are probably hundreds if not thousands of books written by secular authors and philosophers trying to understand what faith is. And to understand what faith is, you have to also understand and write about what you think knowledge is, how a person comes to know anything, whether something as true knowledge exists. So that gets you into the whole realm of discussing whether there is uh, universal truth or only relative truth. And if you're living in a relativistic postmodern society like we are, well, if all truth is relative, then you can't have any certain knowledge. And if you can't have certain knowledge, then faith becomes um, a problem. And it's just a matter, gets reduced to just a matter of opinion. And so people will say things to you, well, that's just your opinion. That always irritated me when people said that it was just my opinion. Yes, it is my opinion but it is a well-studied, thought-through opinion when I have stated things, and I may have a thousand hours behind it, and you're minimizing it by calling an opinion as if it just I just had a feeling, and that's what I think is true, and I've never given it any more thought than that. And that's so, so we have to be careful with that word opinion because there are opinions that are based on thousands of hours of research and thought and study, and there are opinions that are based on a nanosecond's worth of thought and opinion and study. And to equate them as the same thing is, is a real problem. So let's look at what, what, um, what faith means. It has two primary meanings. Two primary meanings. The first meaning is that faith is understanding something and then accepting it to be true. So in that definition, I'm identifying two components. It's First of all, it's understanding something. You can't, I'll say this two or three times and I'll explain it later, you can't believe what you don't understand. So this is talking about the act of believing, 
which is the verb, or the noun describing the act of believing. In Ephesians 2, 8, we have, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a noun. But if you look at John 20, 31, these are written that you might believe. That's a verb. So you have these, these two related words, the verb and the noun, that are very close to one another. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is the verb pisteo, and save through faith is the noun pistis. But they refer to the same, same thing, but we have to understand that part of it. So faith is understanding something and then accepting it to be true. The second meaning is that faith describes what you believe. Faith describes the content of a person's belief system. It is the way we talk about the Christian faith. We talk about the Buddhist faith. We talk about the Presbyterian faith or the Roman Catholic faith or the Greek Orthodox faith. We talk about that body of truth that somebody believes. Scripture uses faith that way as well. Galatians 1.23, we hear, but they were hearing only he, this is talking about what, un, what other Christians had heard about the Apostle Paul's conversion. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith. See, that's the content of Christian doctrine of the gospel. He preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Ephesians 4, 5 says that there is one Lord, one faith, one body of truth, one faith, one baptism. So fundamentally, faith refers to either the act of believing something or, dis- or, the, or the referring to that act of believing, or it can refer to what is believed as an out. So it's used both ways in Scripture. Second thing is that faith is fundamental to all knowledge. Now that is an extremely controversial position, as I will point out. Faith, but biblically, faith is fundamental to all knowledge, and without faith, there is no knowledge whatsoever. And that's what we need to probe a little bit. In human viewpoint, so you go to college, you go to take a philosophy course, you go to take a sociology course, history course, whatever it may be, science courses, they're going to say, well, we believe this because it's fact. We can see it, we can measure it, we can quantify it. And so we we know it. It's not faith. Faith is something when you don't have any evidence whatsoever, then you believe it in spite of the evidence. I've heard people say that too. Faith is when you believe things in spite of the evidence. Okay, they are contrasting all other kinds of knowledge with faith. Once you hear somebody say that, you know several things. They haven't thought very deeply about the subject. They're propagandizing you, and they are dead wrong. In divine viewpoint, faith is rational. Biblical faith is rational. It's based on reason. The scriptures talk about that on the basis of faith, we know things. It is a way to know things just as uh, reason or rationalism or empiricism are ways to know things. We believe with the mind things we understand. Okay, it is with the intellect we believe the things that we have learned from others. We do not have direct, I I bet not one person here, you might have, I may be wrong, but 
Not one person here had anybody, any any school teacher, physical science, talking about the law of gravity, uh, duplicated uh, the apple experiment of Isaac Newton and stood up there and dropped an apple or anything. Okay, so you just took it by faith that he was right. You never did any experiment. You didn't do any any investigation. You didn't work it through mentally. You just heard a teacher tell you that, and you believed it by faith. There are a lot of things that we take by faith based on authority. If the authority is the Bible, we take it by faith from the Bible. So faith is intellectual. It has to do with knowing. And faith is either in the... But but when we think about everything, faith is either in the human ability to reason, faith is in the uh, human ability to correctly interpret the sense data, or faith is focuses on that fact that we can correctly interpret intuitive insights that we have in our own mind, or faith is in some external authority. The point that I'm making is that we either have faith in human ability to reason correctly, we have faith in human ability to correctly interpret the the sense data, the experiences that he has outside of himself. In mysticism, the experience is inside the person. And so we, they say, oh, God spoke to me in a dream last night. So we believe that he has the ability to correctly interpret the dream. It's all based on faith. All knowledge, one way or the other, is based on faith. Now, this is just what I've taught for years in this chart, that there are different ways of perception that's related to how we learn what we learn. Divine viewpoint will fill in the bottom of the chart, and the human systems on the top because the human systems claim that human reason, human empiricism, or human mysticism is the ultimate authority. So it's human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Three aspects in the chart, the name of the system, the starting point of the system, and the method. The first system is rationalism. It starts with the idea that man is born with certain innate ideas. And then on the basis of those innate ideas, he uses logic to develop arguments for the existence of everything else. This was uh, Plato's approach. This was Descartes' approach. He started off, I think, therefore I am, because I have consciousness in my thinking, therefore I must exist. I'm not sure about anything else, but I must exist. So that's his starting point, and then he developed volumes of arguments for the existence of everything else starting there. But his faith was in his own innate ability to reason from his starting point, from his first principles. But it's still starting with faith. Empiricism starts with sense perceptions, what we see, taste, touch, feel, hear. And then we go through, this is typical in the science methodology to observe things and then from those observations we extrapolate to conclusions. So both of these use the same method of logic and reason. Historically, both could not provide the answers to life. What is life? What is meaning? What's out there? Is there a God? 
And so you can't live on the basis of skepticism, so you have to jump to something called mysticism. You just believe it in spite of the evidence. The evidence can't prove that God exists. The evidence can't prove what if there's eternal life. The evidence can't prove what happens after death. So we can't live as if there's no meaning, so we're just going to adopt something to give us meaning and purpose. It's completely irrational. And so it's based on this inner private experience of some sort. And again, it's still faith in human ability. And it is, it's independent of any external authority. That's what I mean by independent in each of these, independent of any external authority like the Bible. It's non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable. The Bible, in contrast, provides revelation from God. And God's revelation, according to the Bible, is self-authenticating. When God shows up and starts speaking to Moses from the burning bush, Moses knows that it is God. He doesn't prove that you're God. He knows it's God. The sound of God's voice is self-authenticating. When God speaks, we know it's God. In scriptural views, faith is in the objective revelation of God. We use logic and reason, but it is dependent upon God's revelation. It is subordinate to God's revelation. It doesn't judge God's revelation. So that that is... That is the starting point. You have rationalism, you have empiricism. Mysticism is what is predominant today. That's why so many people look at what is, goes on in Washington and say, this just doesn't make sense, it's not rational. That's because you're dealing with a culture that is grounded in the irrationalism of mysticism, and it impacts the church. Gordon Clark, in his classic work on faith and saving faith, says, unfortunately at least in the present writer's opinion, many Christians motivated by an irrational pragmatism or by an even more extremely irrational mysticism consider belief to be an emotion or feeling. Great statement. Great observation. Faith in the Bible is not an emotion or a feeling. This will be my last point this morning. Biblical faith is a response to what is taught in the Bible. Romans 10:17. So then by faith, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's a response to what God says, how God speaks in the Bible. We'll come back next time to go further. This lays the groundwork. I hope that you can sit there at night as you close your eyes and think through that chart as many times as I've given it to you. It's repetition to learn that. It is so important to take that grid and be able to put it on so many different areas of life, uh, dealing with current events, dealing with it when you go to school or you're reading something, dealing with history, dealing with science, whatever. What is their ultimate source of authority? How do they know what they know? So important, foundational. Let's close in prayer. And after we pray, uh, we're going to come up and we'll sing the closing hymn. And then uh, we'll take a few minutes just to grab your kids if you need to or whatever. Please stay close. We have a tight schedule because we need to have time for the uh, Korean church to meet at 1230. 
and a congregational meeting should not take that long. So we encourage you, even if you're not a member, to be here so you can hear what is what is being presented and some good information. So after I uh, close in uh, after I close in prayer, then um, then we'll sing. I've lost the page. Here it is. Our, oh God, our help in ages past, number fifty-two. And I'm going to ask Bryce if he'll come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to think carefully about what you say in your word about belief, about believing, about faith. It is the means by which not only do we come to salvation, but also how we live the spiritual life by believing what you have said in your word, by trusting in who you are in your promises in the word. Everything comes down to knowing, applying your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would recognize that consistently the Bible teaches that it is by faith alone, believing in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that he died for our sins and paid that penalty. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us in our faith, that is, in what we believe, that we may live more consistently and that we may have a more consistent walk by faith by means of the Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.